You are listening to Venture Church Podcast. For more information, visit jointheventure.com or facebook.com slash jointheventure. We hope you enjoy. We've been in this series called Under Construction. This is, this is week two of that. And the idea is to ask the question, what does a life built by God look like? In fact, I believe that there are four vital components to a life built by God. Last week we talked about the first thing when any construction project happens is to lay a foundation, right? If you're going to build anything, you want to get a firm, solid foundation. And we talked about how in, in the walk with God and being built by God, the foundation is faith as God builds your life. Foundation and faith is crucial. It's a big deal. But that's not the whole picture. In fact, there's more to the idea of being built by God saying, I want you to be my God and I want to be your person. We got this phrase we use here at Venture called being a God chaser. And the idea is this. I want to put God at the center of everything that I do so that as my life plays out, I'm honoring him with all my decisions, with all my passions, with all my desires, with all my, all my fears, all my doubts, the things Aaron was just talking about. You know, and turn to him and say, I have faith. I trust you. And so this week, what I want to do is get into the second part uh, that I believe is a vital part of God building you. And I want to start like this. Uh, it, it's exciting to be in a growing town. Uh, I didn't always live in a growing city. And, you know, so living in Wilmington is cool because when you live here, there's always building happening all over the place. Like up the street, there's this huge apartment complex that's going up right here. It's almost done, it looks like. And did you remember uh, a few months ago when they put up Panera on the corner over here at Oleander and, and, and Independence? It was like, woo! We're getting a Panera. What happens is, as the city grows, lots of growth, lots of building happens. And as the buildings go up, speculation begins. You know what I mean? You see the skeleton framework of some building going up. You're like, you know, I heard, I heard they were putting a bank there. No, no, no. My friend told me it was going to be a fitness club. And maybe you get into some wishful thinking like, oh, I hope it's a Dairy Queen. You know, and you got these things that you wish it was going to be. Um, there's this moment of speculation. And then there is a clear transition on a day. When the developer or the business owner or the land owner or whatever walks out and puts a sign up by the street, coming soon, Panera, right? The speculation transitions then from speculation to declaration. And it's in that sweet spot right there that I want to hang out today. Moving from speculation to declaration. I know what I believe. I know what I hope is true. But I want to stand on it. I want to declare that. In business, in, uh, in stores, in restaurants, you might call that advertising. You might call it marketing. You might call it branding. When it comes to a life built by God, a word for that is confession. What do I believe? Who am I? What do I stand on? And so if last week, if our, if our, idea, was, uh, if our idea was laying the foundation, which is faith, this week's idea is kind of making the declaration which is confession. There's a lot of different ways you could define confession, but the way that I want to define confession for our purposes of today is to say it is when you make the declaration of what you believe, what you're about, who you stand for, who you serve, and when it comes to God, what you believe about Him. This is moving a transition between speculation and declaration. Uh, what we're going to do this week is get into the Bible a little bit, and it's been cool... Um, over the, the series, our goal is to take kind of a speed tour through the entire Bible. If you've never read through the whole Bible before, it can be a little bit daunting. Like, I've had this conversation so many times with people who are like, I remember, I've heard about this guy named King David. Now, did he know Jesus? Did he live before Jesus? Did he live after Jesus? If you know the Bible, you might, you know that David lived a long time before Jesus. But if you don't know the Bible, if you weren't raised in church, you've never taken the time to read through the Bible, you might really just be like, it's a collection of stories 
And I don't know where the pieces fit. So part of the goal of this four-week series is to see not only how God can build your life, but how God built a nation that became what is Christianity today. And so it's pretty cool to follow through that. Last week, uh, we were kind of on part one. And what I want to do is use our board up here as a, a, a place to kind of recap. Last week, we talked about a guy named Abram. And he eventually has his name changed to Abraham. Uh, Abram was a, a shepherd. i got to draw a little sheep here, maybe. Is this going to be a sheep? We'll see. Yeah, look at that. Sheep. I didn't know if it was going to happen. And he's got eyes. And he's actually going, ooh. Okay. And so there's a sheep. Abram was a shepherd. And, uh, and, and Abram was kind of called out of obscurity. But then God goes to him and says, you know, I want you to follow me and go to the places that I tell you to go. So we followed his whole story. Now, from where we were last week to where we're going to be today, 650 years passes. Okay. And so in the spirit of, I don't know, Star Wars or Doctor Who or something where a lot of time happens in between stuff, what I want to do is try to get through this 650 years pretty quickly so that we can come to a guy named Joshua. If you've got your Bible today, we're going to be in the book of Joshua. We're actually going to start in chapter 1 and we'll eventually be in chapter 24. But Joshua is going to be where we, we land. When, when God talks to Abraham first, he starts with a bunch of promises. And mostly that he would be made into a great nation. Now, the important thing about Abraham to understand is that he didn't have any children. Remember? He didn't have any children, but God makes him this promise that he's going to not only have a child, but become a great nation. He does have a child. And that child has more children and more children. And this little family begins to grow. By the time we get to Abraham's great-grandchildren, we find ourselves in Egypt. This is a crucial transition for what becomes the nation of Israel, which is the Jews or the family that comes after Abram. I'm going to draw, what, maybe a pyramid here, a couple of pyramids. So this is Egypt. Now, while they're in Egypt, um, they, they go from being a pretty prominent people that over the course of this 650 years, they eventually become slaves. So I'm going to write here slavery. The Egyptians see that the Jews are starting to grow in quite numbers and say, we've got to get control of this group of people. So they, they enslave them. They work them really hard. And in this period, the Egyptians, I mean, the, 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 the Hebrews, the Israelites, the Jews, they begin to call out to God. And they say, God, deliver us from Egypt. Get us out of here. There are a few people who still believe that God is who he says he is. And they remember the promise to Abram. And they begin to call out to God. God answers them in a major way through this guy, Moses. Now, I wish we could take all the time today to talk about Moses. We talked about him before. We'll talk about him again. But Moses' story is epic. He comes uh, from a very cool uh, background. But what you need to know is that God uses Moses to perform some incredible miracles. What needed to happen was that the Israelites, the Jews, needed to see and remember how great God is, how God provided for Abram, how God provided for all of Abram's offspring, and to remember that God is God. That they can lay a foundation in him and have faith in him. But the other thing that Moses needed to help somebody see was he needed to let the Egyptians see that God is boss. Over that course of time, Moses is able to get the Jews out of slavery from Egypt. And, and, and he sets up the nation. So I've got a little image here from Moses too. Um, he begins to set them up with their law and with their, uh, you know, their system of government and how they work. And, and this is the Ten Commandments. It is Moses who eventually brings the Ten Commandments from God and sets up the nation of Israel. So that's 650 years of Israelite history. And then we end it today, our guy, Joshua. Now, I want to introduce you to Joshua, and I want to kind of tell you where he comes into our story. Moses was the man. 
He was seen as the undisputed leader of Israel, and he led Israel for 40 years. And in that time period, Israel learned who God was. They learned about the Ten Commandments. They learned about all the ways that God wanted them to live. And he commanded these people in a special way. But there came a time when he got too old, and it was time for new leadership to take place. And there was this guy, Joshua, who had been waiting the wings for all along. Now, I told you we'd be in the book of Joshua, which is the sixth book of the Bible. But Joshua's story actually takes place starting at the second book of the Bible. We read about Joshua in the book of Exodus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and then the whole book of Joshua. And so you got this whole uh, story of Joshua that plays out. Let me tell you a little bit about Joshua. Joshua was Moses' right-hand man. Okay, It was actually Joshua was with Moses when he went up to receive the Ten Commandments. Pretty cool. I actually didn't really realize that as I went back and read the story again. Joshua was the man when it came to Moses. He led military campaigns. He kind of served like a general. He was like an aide to Moses. And so all throughout the time of Moses' leadership, Joshua was the go-to guy. So then when it comes time to transition from Moses to somebody else, I mean, the heir apparent was Joshua. Joshua was going to lead the people. He already had the respect. If you want to kind of compare that to something a little bit more modern, I want to ask you to think about maybe George Washington. Like George Washington was this prolific figure in American history, unrivaled in leadership. After the American Revolution, after George Washington led the troops to all kinds of victory and all kinds of things, the American people, especially the, the Continental Congress, looked to George Washington and said, hey, you're the guy. You need to lead our, lead our people. And so George Washington becomes the first president, unopposed. Like there wasn't anybody else running. There was no election. It wasn't like, who else wants to go? And they're having debates. No, George Washington becomes the president. He serves a term of four years. And then they're like, well, you want to do it again for four more years? And he's like, sure, I'll do it four more years. And people are like, yes. Some people were encouraging George Washington to become the king of America. Sounds kind of weird, doesn't it? And we don't have a king. But this was before we had all the rules that we have. And so George Washington said, no, I spent most of my life trying to get rid of one king. I'm not going to become another king. So after two terms, George Washington steps down. Now, that's the story of George Washington. If you know anything about him, you know he is just an unrivaled character in American history as far as leadership, government, politics. People were just kind of scared in his presence. There's stories of people walking in George Washington and just be like speechless because they couldn't talk. Now, Washington steps down. You ever heard of a guy named John Adams? Yeah, the second president of the United States. Now, John Adams was a great leader. He was actually right there with Washington all through the building of the nation. I, I don't believe America is America without the input of John Adams. But can you, be, can you imagine being the guy who follows George Washington's act? You know what I mean? You got big shoes to fill. And he wasn't completely unopposed. <laughs> there were people who were like, yeah, we kind of hate him. We don't like John Adams. Check out his story. It's pretty, pretty impressive. But Moses was the undisputed leader of Israel. And so it is amazing to see this transition of power between Moses and Joshua and what God does to show up there. Uh, we're going to first check out Joshua's story in Joshua chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible with you today, uh, there are some uh, under the seats. I think it's about every other seat. You're, willing to, you're welcome to take one home with you today. We'll give them away for free. I've also got up on the screen here behind me. But this book of Joshua is basically the story of Joshua's life, and it starts with his inauguration to leadership. Beginning of Joshua chapter 1, verse 1. It says, After the death of Moses... The servant of the Lord. The Lord said to Joshua, son of Nun, Moses' aide, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now then, you and all these people get ready to cross the Jordan River into the land that I'm about to give them, to the Israelites. I will give you every place where you set your foot, as I promised Moses. Your territory will extend from the desert to, Le from the desert to Lebanon and from the great river, the Euphrates, all the Hittite country, to the Mediterranean Sea in the west. 
No one will be able to stand against you all the days of your life. And this is a huge promise he makes at the end. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will never leave you or forsake you. And he gives him this encouragement. So be strong and courageous. Because you will lead these people to inherit the land I swore to their ancestors to give them. In this moment, Joshua takes the reins of the nation of Israel. And this transfer of power happens. And it's completely, it's completely uh, unopposed. It actually is, is very smooth. But did you catch verse 4? Can we put that back up there? I don't, you don't have the numbers, but look at what this is. Between, uh, was it Lebanon and the, and the Mediterranean Sea? It says, this was Hittite country. You see that? The Hittite country. God is telling Joshua to do something pretty impressive. Go to this place and take this land. By the way, it's the Hittite country. Now, you don't have to know who the Hittites are. Here's what you need to know. Some people already live there. Like any of you live somewhere? Who lives somewhere? Anybody live somewhere? Just curious. Okay, we got some homeless people that we can work with later. If you need... Does anybody live somewhere? Bro, this is not a trick question. Okay, cool. Now, let somebody come up to your house and like, hey, yeah, God told me that you need to move out. Yeah, what do you do? Uh, no. <laughs> no, this is my house. I kind of like it. I hung my, my picture right there. That's, this is my house. So this is what God is asking Joshua to do. Go to the Hittite country. Now, they're not just nice people like all of you are. No. The Hittites are a pretty aggressive people. Now, you look at this and you're like, why would God ask him to do that? And actually, I'm looking at, I'm looking at Joshua going, and I'm from Joshua. I'm, I'm looking back at God going, look, God, listen, I hear what you want me to do, but there's got to be a more diplomatic way to do this. Like, you can't just go in and just take the land. From, it's not very kind. Like, I didn't, I'm supposed to share. Like, I learned that in kindergarten. And you don't just go take land from people. But this wasn't Joshua's first rodeo. You remember I told you that Joshua was Moses' aide? This is also not the first time that God instructed somebody to take the land from the Hittites. Forty years earlier, God had come to Moses and said the same thing. Moses, I want you to go to this area. I'm going to give you anywhere where you step your foot. I'm going to be with you. I want you to take this land. I freed my people from the nation of Egypt, and I'm going to give them this land. So Moses does what God tells him to do. He pulls together a group of men to go and research this Hittite country. They've called it Canaan. Canaan was the name of the land. So he gets together 12 people to go into this land and kind of do a recon mission and check out what's going on in there. So there's 12 of them, one man from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. These 12 people go into the Hittite country to the land of Canaan and they do some research and they come back. Now there's 12 men in this group. Guess who one of them was? Joshua. One of the 12 men was Joshua. Here's the thing. In any, in any kind of recon mission, you come back and it's something like this. Well, there's good news and there's bad news. If you know the story, you know where it's going. But let me tell you where it ends. He starts out with the good news. They say, listen, Moses, nation of Israel, Canaan is awesome. They say it's a land flowing with milk and honey, which is something none of us would ever say. <laughs> but what that means is it's prosperous. It's beautiful. They bring back some of the fruit of the land. They're like, we could totally live there. It'd be awesome. That's the good news. But there's bad news. Remember the Hittites that live there? Yeah, not only do they live there, but they're big. They, they, they say, we are like grasshoppers compared to them. Grasshopper. <laughs> he says, we, we cannot do this. And so of the 12 men that went in, 10 of them come back. And basically their assessment, 
the 10 men that come back say, Moses, we can't do this. There is no way we should take on these people. They're too big. They're too fierce. We can't take them. That's 10. How many did I say went? 12. There's two left. One guy named Caleb, another guy named Joshua. And they say something else. Let's look at their report. This is in Numbers chapter 14. It'll be on the screen so you don't have to flip all over the place, but Numbers chapter 14. It says, The land we passed through and explored is exceedingly good. If the Lord is pleased with us, He'll lead us into that land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And He'll give it to us. Only do not rebel against the Lord. And do not be afraid of the people in that land because... We will devour them. Their protection is gone. But the Lord is with us. Do not be afraid of them. This is kind of one of Joshua's primary, like, first entrances, cameo appearances into the Bible. Where we see this. I love this quote from an author I was reading this week. There's a book called Opening Up Joshua by Roger Ellsworth. He says this, Joshua did not need to know where everyone else stood in order to know where he stood. He said, God will give us his land. He promised it to us, and so, yeah, it's scary. Yeah, there's probably going to be battle. But the Lord is with us. How can we fail? This is a shift from speculation to declaration. This is confession. You with me? A life built by God is a life that says, I'm not going to sit here and wonder and worry and be confused all the time because I don't have all the ins and outs. I'm going to declare what I believe with my mouth and with my action. Confession. But the people were scared. Now you notice that God is giving Joshua this instruction to go into the city again, the the area again. Why? Because they ended up not going. They wouldn't do it. They wouldn't fight. They were scared. And so then God speaks up. This is in Numbers 14, starting at verse 30. This is God talking back to the people. He says, Not a one of you will enter the land I swore with uplifted hand to make your home, except for Caleb and Joshua. As for your children that you said would be taken as plunder, I'll bring them in to enjoy the land that you've rejected. But as for you, your bodies will fall in this wilderness. Your children will be shepherds here for 40 years, suffering for your unfaithfulness until the last of your bodies lies in the wilderness. For 40 years, one year for each of the 40 days that you explored the land, you'll suffer from your sins and you'll know what it is to have me against you. I'm going to take, can I step aside for a second? Why is God so angry? What's he upset about? I mean, really, we get this picture of God in our modern society that God is this big uh, heavenly grandpa up in heaven. So he's got a big rocking chair. He's got his, his corncob pipe. And he's like, he's waiting for you. And he sees us mess up. And he's like, oh, come here, you're a whippersnapper. Get up on my knee. And he says, now, boys will be boys. And he rubs our little head and he gives us a cinnamon candy and he sends us on our way. You know, God, God is God. Is God. <laughs> he, he's... God has expectations for the world that he created. And so he says to these people, I'm going to give you this. And they say, ah, nah, no, don't think you can do it. Why is God so mad? Why is he so angry? Why would he cause a whole generation of people to simply die in the desert? Many of my friends who have a hard time believing in God from the Bible say, I just, I like God from the New Testament. I like Jesus. He's the kind of hug you, give you high five kind of guy. But the guy in the Old Testament, he just seems kind of angry. And I just don't, I don't see that. Here's the thing that we've got to understand about God. God is sovereign. You know that word? 
It's a word I looked up because I wanted to make sure. I say it a lot, but I wanted to make sure it was, it was right. Sovereign means this, to have ultimate authority. So God has expectations, and he wants them to be kept. And when he doesn't have them kept, he is the good heavenly father who, unlike parents who are willing to let their kids continue to disobey them and disobey them and disobey them and disobey them and let them grow up and be horrendous adults, this heavenly father says, no, sit. You know what I'm saying? If you've ever had a two-year-old, you know exactly what I'm saying. <laughs> she said 26-year-old. It was funny. Now, here's the deal with God. He is sovereign and he has expectations. And he says to the nation of Israel, this is what I expect from you. And not only that, these are people who had come from Egypt and had experienced otherworldly gods idols and the gods of, of prosperity and money and riches and power because Egypt was the most powerful land. And so he wanted them to know without a doubt, I am God. I just delivered you from Egypt and I'm able to do this and you need to remember this for the rest of your days, but they won't. And so he punishes them. Now here's the second question that comes with this story. I told you I want to step aside and I want to do it again. Another question I have and a lot of people have had is this. Why would God be so ruthless as to cause these nomadic people to go in and savagely steal land from the Hittite people? That is a good question, isn't it? Why, why would God allow that? Now, it would be one thing if, if, uh, if the Hittite people were really, really good people. But let me tell you a little bit about their culture. Uh, and I, I, don't, I'm not, I don't have any Hittite friends. I would think they're an extinct people. But their primary mode of worship was to the cult of Molech, Asherah and Baal. Some people say Baal. Let me just tell you about two of those guys. Molech, I believe, was a demonic cult. And the way that he required worship was that you sacrificed your children in fire. The only way that I will protect your nation is if you bring your babies to me and throw them in this big face. It was like a bull. It was this big, almost like a min minotaur-type creature from mythic times. And you throw your child in there. And the more they're screaming, the more I will bless your country. Before we get upset about the Hittite people losing their land, let's see the obvious. They were not a people who were honoring God. To worship Asherah, she was a goddess of fertility. And, uh, and people who were having a hard time having babies or maybe the crops, were, uh, the crops weren't happening, what they would do is they would, they would pray to Asherah. And one thing they would do is say, if you bless us with, with a baby or if you bless us, bless us with crops or whatever, what we'll do is we'll take our firstborn child and we will dedicate her or him to you. Sometimes what they would do is they would dedicate her to the temple, a temple that oftentimes would, they would be served as almost like a prostitute in the temple as worship. Other times it would be given in, in, in sacrifice, just like to Molech. God doesn't put up with evil. And so like the child who's been whining and complaining and trying to keep their toys from someone else, and you say, I'll take that. God says to the Hittite people, your time's up. And he goes to Joshua and says, go take that land. I promised it to you. And I will give you every place that you step your foot. God is sovereign. And he loves us. And there is grace. Like any good parent, there is grace. He says, you mess up, it's okay, come to me. But the question I want to ask is this. How long do we expect God to put up with evil? And so God tells Joshua, go. Joshua does. 
Joshua does. So let's get back to Joshua, okay? As God allows Joshua to be the nation, the leader of this nation, he asks him to lead this campaign through Canaan, some amazing things begin to happen. By the way, remember when God asked Joshua, if uh, go take the land? And, and I said, what if Joshua thought, no, God, there's probably a more dis- diplomatic way. Remember that? You can see now why Joshua would go, well, I just spent 40 years because the last guy said no. <laughs> I'm going. So he goes. If you get into the book of Joshua, what you see is his campaign going into the Hittite country. And I wish I could tell story after story after story. I just, I just want to tell you one. Can I tell you one story? If you grew up in church, if you know much about the story of Joshua, if you know anything about Joshua, you might know this story. Is that Joshua fought the battle of Jericho. And there's a little kid's song. That if you didn't grow up in church, you're like, how did they know that answer? I wasn't here for rehearsal. It's okay, because you're about to learn too. All right, so Joshua chapter 6, we see Joshua coming into one of his first major campaigns, and he comes to this battle in a city called Jericho. Now, Jericho is a well-fortified city. In fact, uh, the walls were so, so thick that people could live inside them like apartments. It's pretty cool. So we see the story play out as he sends spies in and figures out what the city's all about. And then he's sitting outside Jericho, and I, I just can't even imagine what it was like for, for Joshua to be like, all right, I'll go. So they walk and they get there. It's, it's pretty, quite a journey to get to Jericho. And then you see the city. You're like, well, what now? This thing is a fortified city with a big wall around it. We don't have battering rams. We don't have dynamite. Like, they're not just going to come out here and be like, yay, let's fight. No. By the way, the nation of Israel is over a million people. Can you imagine that sitting at your doorstep? So these, this is going to be a standoff, okay? Joshua begins to pray. What do I do? How do I overcome this? And God comes to Joshua with the plan. I love this plan because it just shows how creative God is. This is in Joshua chapter 6, starting at verse 1. It says, Then the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have delivered Jericho into your hands, along with its king and its fighting men. Can I pause right there? The battle hasn't happened yet. God says, See, I've delivered into his hands. I can just imagine, like, where? I'm still out here. There's still people in there. Verse 3, so he says, march around the city once with armed men. That sounds pretty good. Okay, we're marching around the city, armed men. Got it. What's next? Do this for six days. March around the city for six days? Okay. March around the city for six days. Then what? Okay, then have seven priests carry seven ram's horns. That's like kind of a trumpet thing made of a ram's horn. Carry seven ram's horns in front of the ark. The ark was this, it was, it was very important to the Jewish worship, and it was where they, the presence of God kind of resided. And so wherever the ark went, that was where, you know, the power of God went with the people. Really cool story behind the ark as well. So seven priests, seven ram's horns. On the seventh day, march around the city seven times. Hey, Joshua, I'm sure, uh, he's just listening, but I, as you break it down, you're like, this marching around once, marching around for six days. The seventh day, take the priest and the horns, march around seven times, doing a lot of marching, God, with the priest blowing the trumpets this time. And when you hear them sound a long blast on the trumpets, have the whole army give a loud shout, and then, check this, the walls of the city will collapse, and the army will go in. Now, we, we don't do much uh, wall building here in our because airplanes kind of make that useless. But back in Joshua's day, if you wanted to take out a city with walls, there were basically two, two ways. One, you were strong enough to knock the walls down. Joshua didn't have that technology. And in fact, I, very few, if any, people had that technology in that day to take out Jericho. The second way was a siege. You just waited outside until everybody inside got hungry and thirsty enough and either died or came out and surrendered. 
That was the two ways you took a city. God says, I'll give it to you in seven days. And the way you're going to do it is walk around the city. And then at one point, everyone's going to scream really loud. Now, it sounds crazy. But what I love about God is that he did work on this planet. Therefore, there are remains of his work. You can actually go to the excavation site for ancient Jericho to this day and see some pretty incredible things. There are some details in the story of Jericho that archaeology has proven to be true. It's amazing. In fact, it's been said that there have been zero archaeological digs that have disproved the Bible. This is one that proves it more than anything. If you read the story of Jericho, what it says is that the walls fell out and the people climbed in. If you were going to attack a city from the outside in and knock the walls down, which way would the walls go? In. Yeah, it's basic Legos, right? Basic boiling blocks. Not Lego, they don't really fall much. And the walls fall in. Also, all the walls don't fall in. Only you just bust out like a part of the wall, and then you kind of, you know, crowd in that one spot. The walls came down. Archaeologists set out, many of them hoping to disprove the story of the Bible. But when they found the ancient site of Jericho, what they found was the walls had indeed fallen out. I encourage you to go look it up on your own. But God's promise to Joshua comes true here. And it begins to come true city after city after city. And it wasn't always easy. There were some battles that were kind of hard. One, because some bonehead made a big mistake. And you got to read about that too. But God's promises don't fail. Last week we said that faith is knowing that God is who he says he is. And he will do what he says he will do. All this happens, battle after battle. Joshua lives out. And he comes near the end of his life. We're in Joshua chapter 24 now. And he makes this speech to the people. It's one of the most defining moments of Joshua's life. In fact, if you have been in church long, either you or your grandma or somebody in your house has a sentence from this speech he's about to give embroidered somewhere in your house. This is a very, very famous sentence in the Bible. Joshua gives this speech and he basically recounts the whole history all the way back from Abram all the way to current day. And he's standing in front of the people now after they've won battle after battle after battle. After God has essentially given them the land. And he gives this speech in Joshua 24 starting at verse 14. He says, Now fear the Lord and serve him with faithfulness. Throw away the gods of your ancestors that you worship beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt. And serve the Lord. But... If serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourself this day who you will serve. That's whether the gods that your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are are now living. But, this is a sentence that might be embroidered somewhere in your house or your grandma's house. But, as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. Let me say it again. As for me and my household, We will serve the Lord. When it comes to have a life built by God, there's got to be a moment of transition between speculation and declaration. Confession. And the thing is, I can't speak for you. I can only speak for me. And you can't speak for me and you can't speak for your daughter or your uncle or your aunt or your cousin that you really wish would change their life. You can only speak for you. Through the Bible, the leaders in the Bible use physical reminders of spiritual realities. Physical reminders of spiritual realities. I've got this rock here with me. 
when God would do something awesome, he would often uh, have the leaders make a big pile of rocks right there where that awesome thing happened. If there was a miracle or if God helped them win in some kind of thing, some kind of battle, some kind of uh, whatever was going on, they'd build this pile of rocks because rocks are hard to move. You ever had just rocks in your yard and you're like, man, those are just in the way. And you just leave them there because they're heavy. They put the rocks there and he says, let these rocks serve as a reminder of what happened here today. Let them stand as a testament for people that live after us because I want to make sure that as for me and my house, we serve the Lord. So what he does is he then stands up next to uh, the people. And is there one more verse on, this, on the screen here? This, this is what happens. He says that, and Joshua says back, or the, the people say to Joshua, we will serve the Lord our God and obey him. So Joshua took a large stone, and he set it up there under the oak tree, the holy place of the Lord. He said, see? This stone will be a witness against us. It has heard all the words the Lord has said to us, and it will be a witness against you if you are untrue to your God. Confession is about the transition between speculation and declaration. If you look uh, today, what we today have is amazing. We're, We're in church, okay? Not only are we in church, but we're in a place where we can worship freely. God made a promise to Abram, a promise that he remembered year after year after year after year. Joshua lived 615, 650 years later. God had not forgotten that promise. Through Joshua, through the nation of Israel, we eventually come to a place where God is ready to come into the world in the form of Jesus. Whereas Joshua stood on hope that the day was going to one day get better. I want to remind you, Joshua basically lived a life of war. But he stood on the hope that this promise was going to be fulfilled. That not only was Abraham going to be made into a great nation, but that all of the world will be blessed through him. Today, we stand in a place where that promise has been fulfilled. In Jesus. Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of the the promise that was made to Abram. There's a, a verse that the Apostle Paul gives us in the book of Romans chapter 10. About this shift from speculation to declaration. As he's talking about confession. And this is what he says. He says, listen, if you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. And you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You will be saved. For it's with your heart that you believe and are justified. And it's with your mouth that you profess. And you're saved. Joshua makes this proclamation. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. The people said, we'll do it too. And he holds up the rock and he says, let this rock serve as a visible reminder of the spiritual reality that has taken place here. Opening your mouth and confessing that Jesus is who he says he is, is a huge, major part of letting God build you. When we baptize people, one of the things that we do along that time is we, we, we give them a moment of confession. And they say something like this, that I believe that Jesus is the Son of God and I want to make him the Lord of my life. And I want to be a God chaser. Kind of those three sentences. That's a moment as they take this plunge into a new life with Jesus. And God is about to raise him in newness of life. That they can stand and firmly confess what they believe. No more speculation. No more wandering around like, well, I'm kind of trying some things out right now. You might not be in that place right now. I want to be honest with you and sensitive enough to you to say, look, I understand. That you might still be in the place of Abraham and laying the foundation and figuring out faith. Can I encourage you on something? It's okay. Keep, stay there for a minute. Ask your hard questions. Be nitpicky about the Bible. It stands up. But take the time. And keep coming back and hanging out with us. And I hope if you came with a friend that you'll take time to talk with them. 
But maybe you're at a place now where you're ready to take a step beyond that. I want to tell you two things as we go. The first one is this. In two weeks, uh, right over here, I think it's going to be right over here, we're actually going to have a pool to do baptisms right here. Maybe you're in a place right now in your life that you're saying, you know, I've been really thinking about just doing this Jesus thing. The Bible teaches that when you want to become a Christian, you need to become baptized because that's the moment where we'll talk about it in two weeks. That's, that's actually what we're going to be talking about in two weeks. But maybe in that moment, you've got, you've got two weeks between now and then to study and think and dig. Maybe in that moment you'll be ready to say, I want to take that initial confession. I want to say it for the first time publicly, like this is my moment. I want to look back on that like a rock that I can look back at and say, yes, that's the moment I can turn to. And listen, it, I'm calling you out, men, husbands, dads. And you're called to be spiritual leaders in your home. I'm going to call you out and ask you to grab this stone, bring it back to your family, and take a minute to, to pray with your family and say, look, maybe we haven't been doing it right. Maybe we have. Maybe it's been good for years. But I want you to know that as for me and our house, we're going to serve the Lord. Now, moms who are here and dad's not here, or husband's not here, listen, you guys are raising some amazing families right now. You've got the same call. That maybe you can go grab a, a rock and, you, and you him, you're here by yourself today. Can't get him to come with you. It's cool. He'll come. We'll keep praying for him. Grab that rock. Take it home with you. A visible reminder of a spiritual reality of your confession. As for me and my house, we'll serve the Lord. We left them blank for you, but you can write on them with a Sharpie marker. You can take them home and paint on them. And come back to your seat then and say, in this moment, I declare this is where I stand. If you came by yourself, you're not with a family unit right now. That's fine too. There should be enough if we do it that way to have plenty. If we run out of rocks, I'm sorry. They're, they're a naturally occurring resource. I'm sure you have one at your house. <laughs> but take a moment and say, this is my declaration. This is what I stand on. And finally, if you're in a place where you're just like, whoa, this is my first time here, my second time here. Dude, you're asking a lot of me today. Here's all I want from you. It's not about what I want. This is what I think God is allowing for you today. Just hang out in your seat for a few minutes. Take in what I've just said. Joshua spoke to the people what God did. And he said, you don't want to know what it's like to have me against you. I'm sovereign. And this isn't an act of a rash, angry God. It's an act of a God who loves us and says, listen, there is a better way. And I want you to have that. And I just want to encourage you to just think through what that means in your life today.